Good morning. We're going to be looking now at Joseph's Christmas. Last week we looked at Mary's Christmas. And you'll notice that uh, last week our background was bright green and with wreaths and lots of beautiful Christmas colors. Joseph's Christmas is a darker Christmas. Uh, Joseph, seeing things uh, through the eyes of a man who's responsible for protecting his, his bride and the son that he, his bride is carrying in her womb, is a, uh, it's a story of getting through a lot of really difficult times. And so as we look at this, I want us to uh, notice what it was about Joseph that uh, God in his sovereignty and his kindness and his goodness would choose this man to play this part at this particular point in the story of salvation. So we'll begin by noticing that Joseph is often portrayed standing off to the side. He's not the center of attention in most cases. He's, he's the, uh, I could imagine Joseph being a great deacon in the church. You're not the guy up front, not the guy who's, oh, it would help if I pulled a little door open on this. Those of you who are listening on to the sermon, there we go, beautiful stained glass. And as we see, Joseph is off here to the side, uh, peering in, being uh, awed and amazed by what is going on with his wife. And we see the three kings honoring the Christ child. But Joseph is often, in, in classical art, portrayed as standing off to the side, simply being there, but always silently. We don't hear any commentary from Joseph. But we know this. We know that, G, that Joseph was a kind man. And that shows up at the very beginning of the story in Matthew chapter 1 in verses 18 through 22, where we must assume that Matthew was reporting the story of Christ's birth from Joseph's point of view. Just as we saw in Luke, Luke is reporting the Christmas story from Mary's point of view. Now we're seeing the same story, but it's coming from Matthew's point of view and with details that only Matthew would know. And so we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, from our modern perspective, looking at this story, we can sometimes uh, read into Joseph's uh, behavior what we might feel is, is unkind. 
I mean, he's, he's, he's resolved to divorce her, even though it will be quietly. But Joseph was a man of good moral character. He was a man of personal integrity, which meant that he had an appropriate level of concern for his own personal holiness, not to be, as the scriptures put it, a partaker of others' sins, to not involve himself in a scenario that would bring a reproach upon his reputation and his God. And so we have to understand that Joseph is, is responding as a man should respond, but he's responding <clears throat> with greater kindness than would normally be the case. And so he was not willing to look the other way where immorality was involved, but he was determined uh, as a man who was, in his heart, very kind. He was a man who understood and sympathized with the moral weaknesses of others, not with a superiority, but with a, a sense of compassion knowing that he himself could be tempted and had been tempted. And so he could only at this point see in uh, Mary a situation where she has somehow uh, become pregnant. We don't see any discussion of the circumstances or the possibility of how that could have happened. But, but, mo but no, uh, Joseph is about to uh, take the step that most any man would take in a situation like this. And it's at this point that the dreams begin. And the angels begin to show up in the dreams. And from this point on, we find Joseph responding to the leading of God as these angels repeatedly show up in his dreams and give him instruction as to what to do. So at this point, we see that Joseph was a man of courage. In Matthew 1.18, we read, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we can read this from our perspective with all of church history behind us and think, oh yeah, this is the Messiah who's going to save his people from their sins. They would not have seen it this. They would have thought he would save his people from the Romans. He will save the people from uh, all of the misery that they've been going through all of these hundreds of years now. But no, the angel is telling Joseph, this baby is going to save his people from their sins. But we don't see any questioning going on. Joseph simply accepts this as God's leading. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now this is Matthew comment, making commentary now. Not Joseph uh, giving an oratory. This is, this is Matthew now in explaining the significance of what has just happened. And he shall bear a son, she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. Now, whenever you see these little parenthetical which means, that tells us that the authors of the, of the Gospels expected these Gospels to be read by people who were not Jewish. You know, by, read by people who didn't have the historical context of Israel or a knowledge of the prophecies of the Old Testament, but rather who might not know what the word Emmanuel means, and so Matthew just gives it to us in a parent, parentheses, which means God with us. That is theologically uh, explosive. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Now this is where Joseph marries his bride, Mary. So they are no longer betrothed. They are now legally married. But he did not consummate the marriage. We, he, we don't have any instruction from any angels concerning this, but it is significant that he decided to put off the consummation of their marriage until after the son had been born. Now, courage, we often misunderstand courage. Courage is not a lack of fear. A very important point. A lot of people think they have no courage because they're afraid. That is not true. It would be foolhardy to have no fear when something is actually dangerous. But true courage is the decision. It's an act of the will to not allow your fears to determine and control your actions. This is how a courageous soldier keeps moving forward when bullets are flying by, realizing that at any moment he could be taken out of the battle. But his courage allows him to keep pressing forward and ultimately take the objective and win the battle itself. Joseph's courage was founded on his faith in what God had said to him through these angelic dreams. And so it's not quite the same as going to the Scriptures and finding a sense of direction, but, but Joseph was confident that these dreams were not just something uh, out of his own head, but rather this was God speaking to him, and this confirmed what Mary had told him about what had happened, about her being uh, greeted by the angel and announced to her that she would be the mother of the Son of God. And at this point, the wise men begin to show up. And uh, when these men show up, uh, things begin to roll forward very quickly. These are wise men from the east, we're told, in Matthew 2 and verse 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I remember as a very young child reading the Christmas story, and my first thought was, these wise men were not very wise. In the way that... They in the way that they interacted with 
Herod, okay? Now, how did these wise men know that a star would signal the birth of the Christ child? Where did they get that? Well, I believe we, we find it in, New, in Numbers chapter 24 and verses 15 and in, in 17, where it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So there it is. There's the prophecy concerning the star and the king, and it might be interested to know who prophesied this. And the answer from Numbers chapter 24 and verses 4 and 5 is this is none other than Balaam uh, from Pethor in Syria. Now, if you know the story of Balaam, Balaam was hired uh, by the enemies of Israel to go and prophesy against Israel, you know, to pronounce a curse upon Israel. And he was a true prophet of God. But he was a prophet who was hard on cash at the moment. And so he decided to accept this offer and go. And, and we get in the story this sense that he knows that if God doesn't curse Israel, it won't matter what he says. So he's just going to take the money and, and run, uh, and, and knowing that you can't, you can't make God curse somebody. God doesn't work that way. But after trying several times to curse Israel, um, we, we find Balaam finally just saying, okay, God, I'll say whatever you want me to say. And he launches into this beautiful prophecy concerning the birth of Christ. And his, his uh, employers are, are really outraged that he's blessed Israel instead of cursing them. And that, that their, uh, their attempts to defeat Israel by that means were, were thwarted. So these wise men may have been studying the prophecy of Balaam. They are coming from the east. And so he, coming from Syria a few hundred years before, his writings would have been available to these uh, magi, these, these wise men. They're, they're not kings, uh, they are wise men. And so in Matthew 2, in verses 3 through 6, we read, when Herod the king heard this. Now, Herod was a appointee of Rome. Okay, he's, he's, the, he's the guy who's filling the space where Israel would have their king in the line of David. Herod's whole story is very complicated. He's not a, a good man. He's not a strong man. Uh, he is a, he's a weakling, and he's easily moved by his own self-interest and his fear, as we're going to see. So Herod, the king, uh, when he heard this, he was troubled. Now they've got this phrase, and all Jerusalem with him. So evidently, the rumor mill began to wind up fast. And all over Jerusalem, people are talking about these wise men from the east claiming to be looking for a newborn king who has nothing to do with the line of Herod. And so, the priests, chief priests, the scribes of the people, these are people who are all dependent upon Herod continuing to be in power in order for them to maintain their positions in the, in the society. And so he inquired of these 
uh, it's not clear where, I think it was the, um, the scribes and the chief priests who are being inquired of here, uh, not the, uh, the wise men. He inquired of these scribes and priests um, where the Christ child was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, it is, it is not wise to announce to the current king that his replacement has been born, and he's just outside of town in this little town of Bethlehem. Okay, this is, that's why I wonder, you know, what are these guys thinking? You know, do they not understand, you know, court intrigue and all the rest that goes with, with monarchy? But how did Joseph and Mary end up in this old little town of Bethlehem? You know, why are they there? And the answer is, as we saw last week, that uh, Caesar Augustus declared that all should go to their home of origin. Their, their family line would be identified. Uh, and in this case of Joseph and Mary, that would be Bethlehem because he's in the line of David. And David, of course, is from Bethlehem. And so we see that God has rearranged the entire Roman Empire's population in order to get this one couple into the right place uh, to fulfill the prophecy that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. I think that's amazing. And it's this kind of thing that we have to keep in mind when we start seeing all hell break loose around us. Because God is in control, not just in the big picture, but in the the details of the little picture as well. And so God arranged this, this relocation in order to fulfill prophecy, and he will continue to arrange things in order to continue to fulfill the prophecies. Why is that important? Because in order for us to have confidence that this child is the child, we need to see the circumstances around this child lining up with clear prophecies concerning him. So, it is also not wise to trust the intentions of the current king when he tells you he just wants to meet this new baby. (laughs) That's why we call them the wise guys, right? Okay. Matthew 2, verses 7 through 12, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, Anyone reading this can, can kind of see what's going to happen, you know. But we get it clearly in the next paragraph. After listening to the king, they went on their way. 
And behold, the star that had seen, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is no ordinary star. I don't know about you, but I've not noticed any of the stars moving around and coming to a stop and staying there and being the brightest star in the sky and all of that. So we're, we're dealing with something that is miraculous, whether it's something God has arranged by the mov- movements of the planets and, the, and the, uh, the constellations and how they align at certain points in the cycles of the, of the heavens. Uh, it's not clear. It could have just been a flat-out miracle. Uh, it could have been a drone. We don't know <laughs> what it was, but it was bright, and it moved, and it stopped, and it gave them enough direction that they were able to know this is the place to go and look for the Christ child. Now, I think we need to step back at this point and realize we are dealing with the creator of the universe. Okay? He has complete control over all of his creation. That's why miracles can happen. God can say, this is the normal natural law, you know, things like gravity and, and how different kinds of mass interact with one another. But when Jesus needs to get somewhere, he can walk on the water. Okay? And that's freaking everybody out in the boat. But the physics of that miracle have to do with the fact that God is in control of the natural laws that normally work certain ways. Normally we can't walk through walls, but when God wants Jesus to appear in a room somewhere, he appears in that room and he doesn't have to open any doors. So we're dealing with the God of creation. Now for those of you who are are into uh, uh, computer games and, and, uh, and playing in virtual reality kinds of things, uh, imagine that God were at least as capable as the designer of a computer game. Okay? I'm not saying we're living in a computer game. I'm saying let's assume that the creator of the universe is at least as competent as a computer programmer and that he can put in overrides, uh, patching in code that allows... Uh, mountains to be moved when he chooses. It allows him to have Jesus walking on the water. He allows uh, Lazarus to be rising from the dead after three days in the, in the tomb. This is what we need to, we need to recapture that pre-enlightenment awe that Christians had in regard to God. That he's God. He can change anything. He can do anything. There's nothing he can't do because he at the very least has as much control over creation as the computer programmer has over over a virtual reality. That's all I want to say though. So how this star moves, it's a mystery. But prior to the Enlightenment age, when people begin to question and critique and doubt every miracle in the Bible, people just read this and say, yep, there he goes again. He's God. 
He can make stars move across the heavens and stop right at the right place to make a beautiful Christmas card. And so he did. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. So notice Jesus is no longer in a stable. Mary and Joseph and and the baby Jesus are no longer in the manger. These men did not get the message of look for a child in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. They're looking for a child who's somewhere under that star right there. And, and it's comes to, it stops over this house. Well, that's... <laughs> Think of the consequences of that. A star stopping over a house. It's got to be pretty close. And they go in and they see the mother and the child and they fall down and they worship him. And then they open their treasures, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold representing... Uh, his royalty, frankincense, uh, is a spice that is uh, often used in in medical care as well. And then we have myrrh, which represents uh, preparing a body for death, for uh, being buried. Uh, And and so we have these three representations there. That's the classical understanding of those three. That is, by the way, where we get the number three for the three wise men. Never does it say there are three wise men. This could be two guys with three gifts. It could be five guys with three gifts. You know, we don't know. But we know that there are three gifts, and so we assume there were three wise men. And being warned in a dream, now they're getting the dreams, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. One of my favorite sermons from my childhood was when a, uh, a traveling evangelist came to town, and it was around the Christmas season. And so he preached an evangelistic sermon based on this verse, that these uh, wise men, you know the, the old phrase, that wise men still seek him. You know, If you're wise, you're going to seek for the ch- Christ child. And when you find him, you're going to go home another way. <laughs> that was his idea, taking that phrase, you're going to go home another way. You came this way, but you're going to go home another way. You came here as a drunkard, but you're going to go home uh, as a man who's sworn off the bottle. You know, you may have come in as an adulterer. You're going to go home another way as a man who keeps his vows and, and cherishes his wife and family. And so he just re- really went to town on that phrase. All the different ways that you could come and and find the Christ child, and you're going to go home another way. And I, I love that. Now, that's terrible exegetical preaching, but it's, a, it's, it's pretty effective evangelistic preaching. Uh, so we find these three kings, or these three wise men, these magi, going home another way. Now, God is working... I want you to notice he's working not only through the wisdom, but also the foolishness of the characters in this story. He's not only working through the righteousness, but also through the wickedness. He's working through the dreams. All of this is working together to accomplish his purposes in this world. And that is the God we serve. A God who who is greater than all our sin, 
but he's also greater than all their sin. And all of their intentions come to naught. As Joseph says, you meant it for ill, but God meant it for good in order to save a people. And so God is at work through all of these things. The wisdom, the foolishness, the wickedness, and the dreams are working together. So these wise men found Jesus. They worshipped him with their gifts. And then they went home by another way. Now, at this point, things get really, really dark. And Joseph had to believe God and obey God very quickly. You know, sometimes we, we have the, uh, the time and the freedom to ponder something for a while. You know, kind of to seek God, you know, go take a retreat and, you know, try to seek him and figure out what he wants us to do. And there are other times when God makes it clear to us, you need to act and you need to act now. There, there is no I'll think about it. There's no I'll pray about it. There's just, you know, you can pray while you're leaving. Okay? You can, you can, it reminds me of when I was uh, raising our kids. We had this rule that you were, you were always welcome to dialogue with us about what we're requiring you to do, but you do it while you're obeying, okay? We don't have this conversation before you obey. We have this conversation while you're obeying. So if I say, James, come here quickly, you don't stand in place and say, why? You only ask why as you run toward me. Because that could save your life. You know, whatever the danger might be, uh, you won't have time to get a satisfactory answer before it kills you. You have to just begin obeying, and we can talk about it while you're on your way walking toward Egypt. And so we find here in Matthew 2.13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph again in a dream, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And the word flee here has to do with quickly. You know, get up and go. You know, don't, don't try to take too much with you. Just get everybody up, get on the camel or the donkey, you know, and, and start headed, heading for Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. So the angel's going to continue to oversee and, and, and guard over this this family, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night. Notice this is in the same night that he's had the dream. And departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, as a first-year Bible college student, you often discover that some of these famous and awesome prophecies are coming completely out of context in the Old Testament. And you go, how does that work? Because here's the prophecy. Hosea chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now you would not think that lifting a phrase like, out of Egypt I called my son, would be a clincher prophecy that Jesus is the one, right? Because when you read the prophecy itself, you say, no, it's, it's really not talking about the Messiah here. But the answer is, it really is talking about the Messiah here. And this is the way God works with prophecy. We see this many times. Peter especially makes reference to passages in the Old Testament that we would, we would give an F to a college, Bible college student if he tried to say this is the case. Uh, but the apostles saw the scriptures in the light of the, of the Holy Spirit, and they saw these connections. And so prophecy in the Old Testament provides what seem at first to be merely random phrases. But then they prove to be pieces of a puzzle concerning future events. And we're not in a place today to be using the Old Testament to find prophecies about our own circumstances. There are some, for instance, in Daniel and others that are are clearly intended for the last times. Uh, We see that in the book of Revelation. Clearly prophecies related to our times, you know, in the last days. But we need to understand that God, in almost a holographic way, you know, uh, if you know anything about a hologram, it's actually a whole set of beams all converging to create an image that you can see, but you can put your hand right through it. Because all of the actual sources for all those, those beams are out here on the, on the sides. Okay, that's what a hologram is. And so it's almost like God takes all these little beams from the Old Testament and they're just random little phrases and he brings them all together and again we've got this Christmas card. We've got this scene in which all the parts and all the players are there. And in this particular part of the story, it goes to very dark places. As Joseph and Mary are on their way to Egypt, we need to see here a political refugee fleeing from persecution, murderous persecution, because Satan uses evil men, weak men, like Herod, as tools by which to attack God. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Nobody's more angry than when they tried to trick you and you tricked them back. You know, that's where fury shows up, right? And so he's furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all of that region, not just in Bethlehem, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So evidently, the wise men saw the star appear two years prior, so he's not going to take any chances, any child born Within that two-year period, he is putting them to death. And then we have this amazing statement. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 
a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Another seemingly random passage out of the Old Testament that is a part of the story that comes together in Bethlehem at the birth of Christ. Now in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 we read, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. If you are not of God, and by that I mean, and the Bible means, unless you are a result of God's activity in giving you a new heart and a new spirit and giving you His Holy Spirit, allowing you to be born again from above, a new creation in Christ, unless you satisfy everything I just said, you are under the sway of the evil one. And you could at any time be a pawn in his hand, a tool by which to do evil. When we wonder how can people do such horrible things, how can terrorists do such horrible things, how can political leaders do such horrible things, it all comes down to one thing. God still fulfills His good purpose. Even when He allows the wickedness of evil men under Satan's control to commit great atrocities. Those who bear the crown in this world have been entrusted by God with the means by which to establish and maintain justice. They have a virtually a, a monopoly on the use of lethal force. And that is why it's so difficult to rein in this power that they've been given by God to punish evil. That, that's why the state exists. That is why these weapons exist, is to be able to establish justice to protect the innocent and to punish the evil. But how do you say no to the guy who has all that power? How do you limit the way he uses that power? What if he's a weak and foolish and fearful king like Herod? How do you stop him from sending his soldiers to kill all the babies within the region around Jerusalem who are two years old and younger? The atrocities of evil men are going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger until the end. And I think we need to come face to face with the reality of what that means. We should all be ready to die at any moment. Because the power is getting larger and the, insan and the insanity is getting crazier. And these people still have the ability to push buttons and pull triggers and cause tremendous devastation. We need to pray for those who are suffering. 
but we need to recognize that the whole world lies in the sway, in the lap of the evil one. Unless you are of God, you are in that category, and you're capable of being part of the problem rather than being part of the solution. We live in a time in which we have protected ourselves and our children from the reality of sudden death. You know, people don't die at home normally anymore. So the kids don't have any sense of how this all works. And so we can live in the illusion that we're immortal. And psychologically, it's, it's, it's very understandable because we seem to be the, 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 the principal character in the story that's going on all around us in the world. Have you ever noticed that you are in every scene and you have a big part to play everywhere you go. And so how could the story ever end? You just can't imagine the story ending and, and the rest of the world going on without you. That's psychologically very difficult to do until you see someone you love lying in state. Until you see someone you love put in the ground. Then it hits you. I could die. I'm going to die. I'm probably going to die pretty soon, relatively speaking. When I proposed to Bonnie, one of her sons, uh, said he thought it was a little too soon. He thought I should wait until she was maybe five years, you know, after the passing of her husband. I said, you don't understand, that's 25% of the rest of my life. He laughed and said, okay, and gave his approval to our marriage. But I show you this, this mushroom cloud in order to try to shock you into thinking about what a fragile situation we are living in, how easily things could spin out of control, how the weapons of our warfare are so much more devastating than they were in past conflicts, how there's no corner of the globe that's going to be spared if these forces are unleashed. And I honestly hope to put the fear of the future in you to such a degree that you seek God and say, God, make absolutely sure I'm ready to meet you, that I'm not holding anything back, that I'm not hiding any sin, you know, I just, I want all of you, not that I'm concerned that you're lost, but rather that you would arrive with some regrets. Why do you think God has to wipe away every tear in heaven? Because we will be weeping. Weeping for what could have been if we had only trusted him enough to actually obey him during this life. But God worked through Joseph's fear. We see this in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now notice the angel didn't tell him where in Israel. He could have. He could, he could have said, I want you to go to Nazareth.
But instead, we see that when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but I want to point out how that when God gives you uh, a legitimate caution, it's not a lack of faith <laughs> to, to respond with caution. Joseph is looking at the new situation here. Herod's dead. His son is on the throne in Jerusalem. He's got to decide where to take his bride and his, his, his uh, now his son. We don't know how old Jesus is at this point, but Joseph decides to take the path of caution. And so he goes to the district of Galilee. He ends up in the city of Nazareth. And he fulfills another prophecy. Isn't that amazing? That God working through your legitimate sense of caution fulfills a prophecy. Proper caution is not a lack of courage. Our fears should be informed by the facts of a situation, not by our emotions. God had warned Joseph of danger, and then Joseph had to decide whether doing God's will required him to face the danger or to simply avoid the danger. I believe he wisely chose to avoid it, and by doing so, he fulfills another prophecy. I love that. Because it allows me to have the freedom in Christ to just walk by the Spirit and, and not think that I have to have everything figured out. I just need to take the next step, step onto the stage of my particular life story and speak my lines and then be quiet and <laughs> step off the stage. But this escape to Egypt was a difficult journey. And coming back from it was a difficult journey. And all of this is going on as Joseph is standing here off to the side taking care of his wife and his son. Now we know that at some point Joseph died. In Luke chapter 2 verse 48 we read concerning Jesus being left behind in Jerusalem uh, that uh, he's there discussing and debating doctrine with the, the, the uh, chief priests and scribes. And, and her, his mother says to him, your father and I have been searching for you. So Joseph is alive at that point. That was when Jesus was about 12 years old. In John chapter 6, verse 42, this is not as strong, but it says, and they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And now does he say, I have come down from heaven? So we can assume from here, when they say, Whose father and mother we know, that Joseph is still in town, still alive. Not as strong, but 
good possibility that Joseph is still alive when Jesus was around 32. But whatever the case may be, when Joseph died, we know that Joseph did pass away. And we know that Joseph provided every man with a good role model of great faith, of humility, courage, self-discipline, and quick obedience to God as a husband and a father. And it's a good thing to take inspiration from these kinds of examples and say, I want to be like Joseph. I want to be a man who will hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Joseph did all the good that he could while he had the opportunity to do it. He didn't put anything off for some future time. We can see how he was actively involved in Jesus' life. Now, how can we tell that? Well, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, we have a detail added to this phrase. It says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Not referring to Joseph the carpenter, but referring to Jesus the carpenter, the son of Mary. How did Jesus become a carpenter? Because he followed his father into his trade. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? Now, we know that Jesus walked away from his carpenter tools and responded to the call of God to go and fulfill the purpose for which he had been born, which was to proclaim the good news, to live the perfect life, to die the willing death, to rise triumphant over the grave, to be the King of kings and Lord of lords that we worship and honor here today. But Jesus became the Savior and the Lord that he is, not only because of God the Father, his heavenly Father, but also because of the faithfulness of his adopted father, Joseph. So what should we learn from Joseph? A few thoughts to meditate upon. Number one, even godly people see and remember events differently when differences of gender, age, and responsibility are involved. As you recall, Mary's Christmas, almost none of what we've looked at here today was mentioned in Mary's Christmas. No magi, <laughs> you know, no kings. We have the shepherds. We have the stall, the stable. No slaughter of the innocents. No flight to Egypt. This is amazing. Luke was the most serious historical gospel writer of them all. And he seems to defer to Mary's Christmas and to tell it from her perspective rather than to bring in everything that Matthew records with such detail. So you can be a godly person and still see things differently. So husbands and wives appreciate one another. <laughs> it's okay. You need one another's different perspective. Because without it, you'd be, you'd be uh, flying half blind. Number two, God accomplishes his purposes through all the events, large and small. 
There's nothing that's insignificant. When God is, is in it, it's important. Number three, God works through both the competence and the incompetence of people for the fulfillment of all the good that he intends for those who love him. When you see somebody who seems to be uh, an incompetent person, especially in political life, stop and remind yourself that we get the leadership that we deserve as a nation and that this particular person's incompetence itself is part of God's way of accomplishing what he intends in this world. Uh, That's a kind way of saying these people are God's punishment on our nation. Number four, God takes us through trials rather than taking us around them most of the time. And therefore, trouble is not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure, and prosperity is not necessarily a sign of his approval. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That's why you can have people living in sin and still being effective in things like evangelism. A lot of people are totally devastated by, the, by seeing some of the great uh, radio and other uh, evangelists crash and burn morally. We think, how can that be? So many people came to faith in Christ through them. Well, it's because God's gifts are not uh, revocable. And people can sometimes fall into sin and still have effectiveness in their particular areas of gifting. Because it's a gift. It continues to work. So, don't get your guidance, your sense of direction, from whether or not somebody is blessing somebody's efforts, because there may be more to the story. Number five, we may not live long enough to do anything later. (laughs) So we should do all the good we can while we have the opportunity to do it. When my first wife, Sono, passed away, one of the hardest things I went through, and I've talked to Bonnie about this, and she had a similar experience, You know, you go through this process of cleaning out the drawers, clearing out the closets. And we would find dresses that Sono had purchased with the intention of wearing this for some special occasion. And it had never been worn. She actually set aside money in envelopes for something, to do something special. And the money was still in the envelope. And I took that as a rebuke that I should have made sure there were occasions for her to wear those dresses. I should have taken the initiative to come up with some ideas on how we could make use of what she was setting aside, that It should not be something that I look back on and say, well, I wish we'd done this and I wish we'd done that. No, she's fine. She's with the Lord. She's in heaven. I'm sure she's not too mad. Maybe she is. I don't know. But I know that I have tried to live ever since that point with a mindset of not taking tomorrow for granted. To not presume upon the future. And to as best I can, do everything I can so that we don't have any envelopes laying around that we never got to use or dresses that never got to be worn. 
Bonnie and I celebrate our anniversary, our wedding anniversary, on the 28th of every month. And that allows us to kind of catch up on what we should be doing. Now, I close this message with this statement. As we celebrate Christ's birth, let us never forget this kind man, Joseph, standing off to the side. He also was chosen by God to be a faithful husband to Mary and a faithful father to Jesus in obedience to God's command to love them, protect them, provide for them, and lead them through this fallen world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for the example of this man, Joseph. Lord, may we not only see his good qualities, but may we imitate them as well. And may this Christmas, Lord, be a beginning of living life more like Joseph. We ask it in Jesus' name.